Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's Monday morning, so this must be Cleveland.com's This Week in the CLE, our weekday podcast about the coronavirus. I'm Cleveland.com editor Chris Quinn with editors Jane Cahoon and Laura Johnston. Chris Ranowski is taking the day off. Did you get outside to get some fresh air over the weekend, Jane and Laura? Absolutely. Walked in the park both days. I did. My kids got jump ropes from the Easter Bunny, so we tried those out. It is much tougher as a grown-up than they, it was as a child. That's not that's not an indoor activity. <laughs> no. What about you, Chris? What did you do? I uh, I did some gardening on a lame foot after I badly sprained my ankle, but that I was game. So. Ouch. All right. Well, we'll be talking a good bit on today's podcast about how we might permanently emerge from our cloistered existences. Let's get started. Should Ohio Governor Mike DeWine allow businesses in rural Ohio to start reopening sooner than the urban areas like Cleveland? That's a suggestion from the man in line to be Ohio's next state Senate president. Jane Cahoon, what's this about? Yes, this is Senator Matt Huffman. He's a Republican from Lima. He wrote a letter to the governor asking that businesses in less densely populated areas be allowed to reopen. He said many small businesses, they they just can't withstand this prolonged closure. And he said perhaps, you know, if the infection rates are really low in certain areas, they could they could start to get back to business. And ju- just to give this a little bit of a broader view, which Andrew Tobias did in a, in a piece that he published this morning, Huffman's not the only fellow Republican who seems to be turning up the heat on Governor DeWine. House Speaker Larry Householder has convened a task force that's studying how to best restart the Ohio economy. And Andrew talked to state rep uh, Paul Zeltwanger. He's from Warren County uh, and he chairs this task force. He said, you know, he's not diminishing the public health threat here, but he's heard from people who've questioned you know, whether the number of deaths from the disease justify all these closures, which is pretty, you know, strong language, um, you know, that have put hundreds of thousands of people out of work. And Householder went even further. He he made a rather incendiary remark to the Dayton Daily News that he, he criticized the state for using these, this new reporting of the numbers, which classifies cases, um, even though there might not be a test to confirm it, uh, but there's enough, you know, with the symptoms to call it a yeah, they're counting. Case. They're now counting um, presumptive cases as confirmed cases. Right, it, it makes some sense. But but what Householder said was, seven hundred thousand Ohioans are unemployed now, while they are escalating their numbers to justify the policies, which is pretty 
you know, that's a pretty big accusation to, to be making. All right. You covered a lot of ground there, but let, let, let's go back to the beginning of that. <laughs> it's an interesting wrinkle allowing a phased re-engagement based on geography that hadn't come up before. And it kind of does make sense in places like Cleveland, where we have a whole lot of people, whatever went out too soon could spark a, a big uptick in cases. But in rural areas where they have hardly any infections anyway, and they're not close together, would the risk be low enough? And, and, you know, is Huffman talking about schools and things like that? Or is this just businesses? I don't think he brought up schools and I don't see them reopening this school year. But businesses, you know, who knows? Just keep in mind that this virus has touched almost every county. There are only three now uh, where where it hasn't been confirmed, Harrison, Putnam and Vinton. And it's extremely contagious. But that said, Governor DeWine and Lieutenant Governor John Houston have said repeatedly that this isn't going to be like flipping a switch, that it's going to be like a rolling reopening. So, but I, but I do wonder about householder questioning the change in the numbers. Uh, DeWine came out and said, look, the CDC recommended we do it. DeWine wasn't actually, you could tell he was not happy about it because it does take away a lot of apples to apples comparison. And the state has continued to put up both sets of numbers, but it is, but it is interesting with householders saying, you know, why, why are we changing the counts? That just, that, that makes it look bigger when, when we're actually not having that big of a problem. And it'll be, you know, every day we get notes from people that, that question this whole thing. You know, they say there's many more people that die of the flu, all, all those arguments. And and you really do get the feeling, especially from Andrew's story, that that's becoming a Republican sentiment in the legislature. Right. The doubters, the doubters are definitely out there and making themselves heard for sure. DeWine has hinted that he might release a plan this week on how he sees us coming out of the restrictions. He didn't comment on Huffman's idea. I know he works with Huffman. Is it possible that he'll incorporate that into his plan? I'd say it's possible. DeWine said Friday at his briefing that his staff was going to spend the weekend working on a plan to gradually reopen the state. You know, they made it clear that we're not just working on getting us through this crisis, but we're we're working on a, I think he called it fairly sophisticated plan to, to get us out of this. So uh, I think we'll hear uh, more about that this week. Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Does Cuyahoga County have a race disparity in coronavirus cases? Laura Johnston, the County Board of Health, released race breakdowns for the first time Friday, and the stats were as disturbing as they are in the rest of the country. The numbers do come with some caveats, but let's start with what they show. Okay, so as of Friday, the Board of Health said 39% of the little over 1,000 lab-confirmed coronavirus cases in the county are people who identify as Black. That's disproportionate since about 30% of the county is African-American. And as with the, the, the state numbers, the county numbers come with some caveats. What, what are they? Well, first, the race in about 10% of these cases in the county is unknown. That box was not checked. The seven, second caveat is even bigger. You know, these are just confirmed cases of people who have been tested. And as you know, tests are limited to the sickest people. Also, it may be even tougher to get a test if you're disadvantaged and you don't have resources. Just for comparison, statewide, about 26% of confirmed cases are in African-Americans, and that's double the percentage of the African-American population in the state. 
we don't have breakdowns of the rate of fatalities of coronavirus cases. The pattern does seem to be clear, though. Everywhere that is measured shows African-Americans getting hit harder by this. What is the early thinking on why that is? There aren't any studies on this yet, but early thinking points to the same reasons that African-Americans tend to have poorer health outcomes in general. Minority groups tend to have higher rates of poverty and higher percentages of people without health insurance or primary care physicians. There's prevalence of chronic conditions that make people more susceptible to virus like asthma, diabetes, obesity. Also, coronavirus cases are higher in urban areas. And then there's this overarching implicit bias that disproportionately affects communities of color, like the fact that African-American babies are four times as likely as white babies to die in their first year of life. Like, it's just overwhelming. Um, Cleveland City Council actually has introduced a resolution declaring racism in Cleveland as a public health crisis and wants to try and figure out a way to fix these societal problems. Well, it's a, it's, it's, I imagine that as we get all the data and we get all of the health data and how many people have diabetes and how many people have heart trouble and you break it out down by race that we'll, we'll have some clear information on where we can go. But, but it just, this does seem so much like the infant mortality numbers where it's just, it, it's worse. And, and that implicit bias may be the explainer. It's this week in the CLE. What are the phases we will go through to end the coronavirus crisis? And will people be afraid to visit zoos or go to concerts and sports arenas? The national conversation seems to be shifting to the future. We're all in the middle of being restricted to our houses, but we know that has to come to an end. And lots of people now are talking about what that looks like. We have a lot of ground to cover on this. Let's start with reporter Corey Schaefer's story from over the weekend, the one that looks into the phases of recovery. Laura Johnston, what are they? So this was a really sobering story for anyone who thought we might be on the cusp of returning to pre-coronavirus life anytime soon. This paper was released through the Conservative American Enterprise Institute, and it names four specific phases. We are still in the first one. That is slowing the spread and increasing medical capacity to handle an outbreak. This paper says the most challenging step in this first phase is dramatically increasing public health infrastructure. The idea is that they could rapidly track disease outbreaks and quarantine people who get sick just about immediately. We're not ready to leave this phase until hospitals have plenty of capacity, everyone with symptoms can get tested, and the state can monitor every person who tests positive for the disease and figure out all their contacts. So that's a huge hurdle. The second phase is gradually lifting restrictions while developing medication and vaccines for the most vulnerable people. Number three is scaling up for mass vaccinations. And that's when you finally fully lift restrictions. And then four, finally, is creating the framework to prevent the next outbreak. It's interesting that that last phase has nothing to do with the crisis. Is it wishful thinking that we'll have that extra phase where we prepare for the next one? We've been talking about the possibility of a pandemic for pretty much my entire lifetime, and yet we were not prepared. Yeah, apparently we were really lacking. Uh, This plan calls for creating a national infectious disease forecasting center, kind of like the National Weather Service, which would use disease modeling to inform public decisions. We'd also keep an increased ICU and hospital capacity and then expand the supply chain of masks and other personal protective equipment so that we'd have it more easily, maybe have it in the country and didn't have to wait for shipments from overseas. 
and we would develop easy tests for new infections. That's a really big ask. Yeah, that all sounds well and good, but it sounds like wishful thinking. We also had a story by Eric Heisig about a survey done with thousands of Americans about the kinds of cultural institutions they might be willing to visit post-coronavirus. Playhouse Square should be worried about this. Laura, what does that survey say? It makes sense. It says we're more likely to gather outside at places like the zoo and the botanical garden where we can move around and separate ourselves from people. We are less likely to go to a movie theater or a concert where we're smashed into seats inside with hundreds or thousands of people. Who did the survey? Is it credible? Yeah, it's by Impacts Research and Development. It stands for Intelligent Models to Predict Actionable Solutions. They talked to more than 2,000 Americans once in March and once in April. Jane Cahoon, you're a diehard Indians fan. Did it surprise you that in this survey, people seemed willing to go to sports events, even though it would put them in the close quarters with lots of people? I mean, they might not go see Hamilton, but they would <laughs> definitely go see the Cavs, Indians, or Browns. Yeah, I have to say I was surprised, especially that people would be willing to cram into an indoor arena. You know, that's bad enough. But and even at ball games, you know, you're outdoors, but you're really close to other people. But then again, don't ever underestimate people's devotion to their sports teams. They're going to have Indians like Wahoo masks <laughs> like that guy oh. is going to be right in the middle of their mouth. It just it's just odd that people are differentiating between the two. They, I won't go to Playhouse Square kind of thing, but I will go into a sports arena. There is a danger in all this talk, right? If we rush headlong into things where people gather, we could reignite the pandemic. We keep being told that. Reporter Mary Kilpatrick looked at Cleveland's experience with the 1918 pandemic and found mistakes were made in Cleveland. Laura? Yeah, it doesn't that sound like things were so well thought out a century ago. Pretty much restrictions were lifted completely and everyone rushed out. This was in part because it was November 1918, which was the end of World War I. So everyone wanted to celebrate the armistice. And many cities then had a secondary spike of the flu just from everybody running out and sharing their germs. Some implemented half measures like limiting the capacity of theaters, but a lot didn't. And they just people got sick and then got over it. What's interesting about the 1918 pandemic, which is popularly known as the Spanish flu, is it killed millions of people. And it was a really scary time across the world and in America. And yet that fear seemed to just dissipate. 1920 brought prohibition. People poured into speakeasies. The 1920s were not a time of social distancing. It seems like the memory of the pandemic and all the fears people had just faded quickly. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what happens now. I really do believe our behavior will be determined by our own personal experience. If you don't get sick and you don't know anyone else who is severely ill, you're much more likely to resume your pre-coronavirus mentality and be totally comfortable going to a theater. Other people who know people who got sick or have seen the mass you know, infections at hospitals, they're going to want to keep their distance and wear masks and not shake hands with people. Well, you know, there are things, uh, unlike in the past, you don't have to go to a movie theater to have a big screen experience. Everybody has a big screen now. So you could probably get by without going into a crowded movie theater. But if you want to go to a Broadway show or any kind of other live theater, there's really no other way to do that than to go right. in. Maybe, maybe the difference is people will go to that and they'll be wearing masks. So instead of worrying about the guy eating popcorn making noise next year, we'll hear all the noise of the rustling of the masks. <laughs> They'll knows? be selling them with the uh, 
the DVDs or the uh, the T-shirts in the the lobby. Yeah, they'll be they'll be right. They'll be commemorative masks. It's this week in the CLE. When is an elective surgery a necessary surgery in the coronavirus epidemic? Working from a question posed by a reader, we asked reporter Kaylee Remington to disabuse people of their popular notions on elective surgery. The words conjure things like cosmetic surgery and the like, but Jane Cahoon, Kaylee found a lot of elective surgeries that are on hold are pretty important to the people who need them. Yeah, she found that there are some public misconceptions about this. It's not just things like plastic surgeries that are on hold. It could be a knee surgery for a torn cartilage or a joint replacement, a hernia repair, or a colon surgery for, for polyps. E- even some low-grade cancers are on the list. But some things can become more urgent as time goes by and, and move out of that elective category. Generally, the, the procedures that can take place are supposed to be life-saving, preserve the function of organs or limbs, reduce the risk of metastasis uh, or progression of a disease, or reduce the risk of severe symptoms. A few hours after Kaylee published her story, Ohio's public health director, Dr. Amy Acton, called on Ohio doctors to listen to their patients when it comes to elective surgeries. She seemed to say that maybe doctors have gone too far in delaying them. Yeah, it's uh, you got to believe she read Kaylee's story. Uh, she she actually got uh, pretty emotional about this. Well, maybe not emotional, but passionate about saying, hey, if you're in severe pain, you know, talk to your doctor. This this is should be, you know, let's use common sense here and um you know, go to your doctor or go to the emergency room or just, you know, and doctors listen to your patients here. So what is it? If I have a melanoma, can I get it removed? If I'm barely able to walk, can I get that knee replacement? My gallbladder is causing me agonizing pain, even though it's not life-threatening. Can I get it taken out? Well, as I said, I think common sense has to come into play here and look at things on a case-by-case basis. If you have melanoma, that could metastasize and endanger your life, then I suspect, yeah, they're going to let you have your surgery for that. This is Laura Johnston. I wanted to add here that my dad had back surgery the day the governor banned the elective surgeries, and he'd been waiting months to have it. Where I was supposed to have foot surgery, I canceled it, and that wasn't a big deal for me. I was totally fine. But all surgeries are not created equal, even if they don't meet those very strict um, ideas that Acton laid out. What I appreciate but appreciate about Acton is that she and DeWine and Lieutenant Governor John Houston as well seem like they really do want to be responsive to issues that are arising in the lives of Ohioans during this crisis. They seem to be listening. I mean, it was clear they were paying attention to that story and trying to act on it. That's that's pretty impressive to have people in those positions that are trying to 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 help the residents out. No. Yeah, they they seem to be tapping into people's concerns and, and trying to get out there as soon as they can to to tamp them down. Yeah, it's impressive. It's this week in the CLE. Are young people getting the coronavirus in Cuyahoga County? One of the signature traits of the coronavirus is that it hits with increasing frequency the older people are. And it's more deadly based on age as well. People over 50 are generally at much greater risk if they get it. But Laura Johnston, that does not mean people in their 20s and 30s are not getting infected. 
No, we've been much more concerned about elderly people and those with underlying conditions, but nearly 220 people between the ages of 20 and 44 are among the 1,021 people in Cuyahoga County with confirmed cases of coronavirus. Friday was that first time the countywide breakdown of cases affecting the different age groups were available, but we don't know any of the underlying conditions. Could that be deceptive? If older people get more sick, isn't it likely that a bigger percentage of older people are tested? I learned Friday my 30-year-old daughter has it. She lives in North Carolina, and she was diagnosed by telemedicine. A doctor talked to her about her symptoms, the raw throat, the dry cough, said she most certainly has the coronavirus, but she was not tested. We've heard from a lot of people who do not have life-threatening symptoms that they went through a similar experience, that they called in and they were told, yeah, you probably have it. We're not going to test you. Stay home. Get well. Yeah, it's totally plausible that there's a lot of 20 to 44-year-olds that have it. And honestly, they might not even know they have it. Uh, Dr. Acton has said over and over that tests are extremely limited. We're only testing the seriously ill or people who work in nursing homes and hospitals and, and now jails. All of the people who have died in suburban Cuyahoga County were between the ages of 55 and 93. But I've had conversations with a bunch of friends who now are getting in the very end of that 20 to 44 age group. And we've all wondered, well, maybe maybe that cold we had in February, maybe that was coronavirus. But we're, we might not know ever know. Jane Cahoon is the only answer here, antibody testing. And has Ohio Health Director Amy Acton said anything about trying to do random testing or universal testing for that matter? I think all of us, like Laura just mentioned, and particularly those of us who are older than 50, will want to know if we have the antibodies, because if we don't, we'll be taking care for a very long time. Right. That is the key. And Dr. Acton has talked about both random testing and antibody testing, but she hasn't provided a timetable for either one. They're, they're working on it. Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How is it okay for food trucks to be operating in Ohio's highway rest areas? Ohio Governor Mike DeWine made an announcement about this during a briefing last week. Jane Cahoon, what did he announce? He announced that the Ohio Department of Transportation is now allowing food trucks to, to set up shop at the state's 86 rest areas. And this is usually uh, banned under federal law. But uh, last week, the federal highway officials gave states permission to allow food trucks to operate at these rest areas. We do kind of take for granted all those deliveries that are happening in our neighborhoods. They've really eased the effects of the pandemic. The truckers are the, one who's, the ones who make that happen. They're kind of the unsung heroes of this thing. And DeWine said they were having trouble getting food while on the road. Right. DeWine said he noted that truckers are the lifeblood of the economy now, such as it is. And, uh, you know, we've we've closed all the, the restaurants except for carryout and delivery. But that presents a problem for truck drivers because their vehicles don't often fit, you know, through a drive through uh, or or in a fast food parking lot. So this is a way for them to actually get some decent food. The highways are mostly empty, apparently. Somebody broke the, the Cannonball Run over the weekend by using the empty roads to fly from one side of the country to the other. Uh, but there are people that are on them. Can any traveler get food from the food trucks or is this specifically just for the long haul truckers? I don't think there are any restrictions on, on who can patronize the food trucks, but there is a restriction on the food trucks in that they are not allowed to sell like prepackaged items 
because they don't want them to compete with the vending machines at the rest stops, which are <laughs> usually operated by blind and visually impaired people. So they don't want to upset that. Is there a social distancing danger here? If I go up to the truck, am I too close? How does that work? Well, they've said that these food trucks have to abide by social distancing restrictions, and they've got to wear gloves and masks, et cetera. So they're, they're taking some precautions, but at some point they've got to hand you your food, right? This is one of those unforeseen consequences that I guess the governor has to deal with. Who would have thought that feeding truckers would become a challenge? This sounds like an elegant solution, helping the long-haul truckers while also helping the people with food trucks. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Okay, we had a quick episode today, but we should we should uh, talk about that video that the Ohio Board of Health put out with all the mousetraps and the ping-pong balls. It's, it's very cool. It went viral. Uh, Jane, you know, talk a little bit about what it showed. Did you really want to say viral, Chris? (laughs) 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 Yeah, you're right. It was so cool. I I believe it was a Dayton ad agency that that, uh, came up with it. And it shows a series of mousetraps all crammed together. And then the ping pong ball drops and they just all start flipping. And and, um, so you can see the, the chain reaction. And then... And then the next scene is uh, where they're, they're distanced, the, the mousetraps are, are set apart from one another, and then this little ping pong ball just kind of drops harmlessly in between them. And then the message is, you know, how important social distancing is. It's, it's a very quick ad, but very effective. Yeah, it's really, it really is effective. I and mean, we have it on cleveland.com with a short, a short story. So. Okay, well, uh, the, the holiday weekend did keep news to the minimum, which is nice. I, I know we've launched all sorts of new stories today, so we're going to have another busy week. I hope you're both rested and ready. Let's ready to go. go. <laughs> all right, thanks, Jane and Laura. And thank you for listening to This Week in the CLE. We'll return tomorrow with the latest Northeast Ohio news about the coronavirus. 